But it is good to be here uh, with you this morning and uh, get to uh, take part in the sermon series that we've been going through this summer as we move through uh, the book of Hosea. So, so to start off today, I want to talk about fairy tales. So we all love fairy tale stories with fairy tale endings, don't we? Whether it's a book or a movie or even a video game with an intense storyline, we all love to see happy endings of a fairy tale nature. Now, even grown men love their fairy tale endings. We just choose to call them epics. Lord of the Rings, Braveheart, Marvel movies, and Star Wars. So regardless of the storyline or the characters, we all love to see that happily ever after. Now, Hallmark has made its name in the movie world by writing some of the worst and the cheesiest fairy tale stories that could possibly exist and turning them into sappy movies. I know I just lost some of you, didn't I? So the problem with these terrible movies is that in spite of how cheesy they are, if we start watching them, they threaten to ensnare us to find out if the fairy tale ending really happens. Just once, I would like to see Hallmark produce a movie where the couple doesn't end up in their happily ever after. I mean, think about they're driving up in the mountains and they crash in a ravine out in the wilderness and he dies, leaving her to struggle alone to survive as she makes her way back to civilization. Or maybe she gets enamored with this innocent-seeming pretty boy only to find out that he sits atop of an international drug cartel and he has to flee the country to avoid the FBI. Or how about this for a Hallmark movie title? A Hallmark Christmas Alien Invasion. So so if anybody has connections with Hallmark movie people, just let them know I've got some ideas for them, all right? So there are certain elements and features of these stories that really help us get into them, right? How endearing are the main protagonists? And when things start going wrong, how high are the stakes? What's at risk? And how dire and dark do the circumstances become? And all of this determines how epic the victory will be and how great the fairy tale ending really is. Does the world, whether it's the entire world or just the world and life of our protagonist, get saved and become a better place? And are we more uh, in love with the main characters, and are they still as endearing to us after we experience the ups and downs of their story? Now, if you didn't know, the Bible has some of these fairy tale stories in it. Think about Joseph's story of tragedy turned to triumph in Genesis, or the book of Ruth, or the story of Esther. One could even look at the entire Bible in this fairy tale way and thinking about Revelation being that climactic happily ever after that we are all looking forward to. Now as we continue through this journey through the book of Hosea, we are going to return to the relationship of Hosea and Gomer, and we're going to find out that their relationship has taken a turn for the worse. But through this terrible turn, we are going to learn about the greatness of God's love for his people. And we're going to learn that God does indeed desire a fairy tale ending, not only for Gomer and Hosea, but for his people, which means all of us. So if you would, you could turn over in your Bibles to Hosea chapter 3. 
Now, just to remember that Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel after they had split from the southern kingdom. And Hosea's ministry is near the end of the northern kingdom before the Assyrians come in and take them captive and disperse them. Hosea 3 is a short chapter of scripture, but don't let its size fool you into thinking it is insignificant. This is a powerful section of scripture. Now, this passage breaks down into two sections, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 5. But let's read it in its entirety to start. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethek of barley. Then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man, and I will behave the same way towards you. For the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods, and afterward the Israelites will return to seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. So let's recap the story of Gomer and Hosea. In chapter 1, Hosea is told to take for himself a wife of whoredom. Hosea found and married Gomer. Together they had three children whose names represented Israel's relationship to God. There was Jezreel, and he represented punishment that was to come to Israel for their spiritual adultery. There was Lo-Ruhamah, whose name meant no mercy, and represented the fact that when this punishment came, Israel would receive no mercy from the Lord. And finally, there was Lo-Ami, which means not my people, representing that through their actions and desertion of God, the covenant relationship was broken. We need to remember that God likes to use imagery to communicate theological truth. So God doesn't just say things, he likes to show them. And this little family is a representation of God's relationship to Israel. And when we pick things back up in chapter 3, we find that circumstances have not improved, but worsened. Look at the state of things in verse 1. Gomer even after having had these children with Hosea, has deserted him. Hence, God has to tell him, go again and love this woman. Not only has Gomer deserted Hosea, but she has run into the arms of another man. She was promiscuous and wayward before, and she has returned to her old ways. The spiritual adultery of Israel which Gomer's actions represent, is described by the specific actions that Gomer takes. First, we note that she is loved by another. Now, the Hebrew word for love here has a number of connotations. It could be about sexual relations. It could be about falling in romantic love. It could be about a deep emotional care or commitment or simply making an alliance with someone. So this is a complex relationship. And we know for certain that this relationship is not just a business transaction. The adulterer that took Gomer in is all in on this relationship, and she is taken by him. 
Like many broken love relationships, this relationship is messy and out of whack on many levels. Now, second, we have to note that Gomer and Israel, in turn, reciprocates this love. Israel has turned to other gods and gone after them with their affections and actions. When Israel has turned to other gods, this means that they have turned their backs on the God who loved them from their youth and provided for them throughout many generations. Now, you'll notice that there's a comment in there about sacred raisin cakes. Now, the mention of these sacred raisin cakes, which I hope they tasted better than rice cakes, but they give us insight into exactly who Israel has put itself in spiritual bed with. These cakes were used in their worship uh, celebrations for the goddess Asherah. Asherah was known as a goddess of war and sexuality and fertility. And some scholars even suggest that in Israelite folk religion, Asherah was viewed as Yahweh's divine consort which is why she is referred to as the queen of heaven in Jeremiah 7 and 44. And in Deuteronomy 12, God explicitly commands the destruction of her shrines explicitly for the sake of the purity of Israelite worship. But they didn't obey, and now they have turned their back on him. Now we must also note that God asked Hosea to initiate the reconciliation process. Hosea is supposed to go. Hosea is supposed to love this wife who deserted him and love her with the same affection and devotion with which she has gone after another man. With this all-in kind of love, which, which he gives himself fully back to her. This is how the Lord loves the Israelites. No matter how great their spiritual apostasy and desertion God is going to pursue them and take them back. His love is shown by the nature of his undivided and undeterred heart. It is also shown by his unrelenting pursuit. Even though there are consequences for their choices, he will inevitably come back for his beloved people. Do you know that God's love for you is this extravagant and this unbreakable? Do you know that in spite of any circumstances or actions that might have carried you away, whether you have experienced spiritual apathy, idolatry, sin, or disobedience, along with the shame or guilt or condemnation that accompanies these things, God loves all of us and each of you personally with a powerful love that will cross any chasm and break down any barrier to bring us back into right relationship with him. He desires you that badly. Now, in verse 2, we see that Hosea has to buy Gomer back. He buys her for 15 shekels of silver and some barley. Now, scholars have some... uh, various ideas about what exactly it is that Hosea is paying this price for. Some think that he is purchasing her out of some form of enslavement. Some think this has to do with simple financial indebtedness. Now, it is interesting to note that in Exodus 21.32, 
restitution for a slave who had been gored to death was 30 shekels of silver. So if this is the case, Gomer's worth in society was that of a dead bond servant, possibly even less. Nothing that was valued grandly in the world's eyes. Regardless of the interpretation, we know that Hosea bought her back. And God will buy us back out of whatever we are indebted or enslaved in. Whatever the price is set, he will pay. And this is extravagant love because we already know what the price was that the Lord paid for us in sending his son to the cross for us and that we are definitely not worth the price that God paid. Peter describes the value of what he paid to redeem us and bring us back to him in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. It says there that you know that you were ransomed from feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that with, of a lamb without blemish or spot. How great is the love of the Father that he would send the Son to pay the price of our redemption. Do you know that God loves us so deeply and profoundly? And do you not just give a nod to it, but do you have the well of that love alive in your hearts because this is the hope that we have in Christ. As Paul puts it, that our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. This is a living hope. It's a living reality, free for us to drink deeply from. And we don't just drink deeply from this well. We live vibrantly from this well in freedom, knowing that through the cross of Christ, our God has bought us back out of all the shame and guilt, all of the hurt and all of the heartache our sin and rebellion has bought us. He has traversed every stretch of brokenness we have run across in our retreat from him, His love will break down every barrier we erect and push aside every hurt that we use as a shield to fend him off. And it will throw off every sin that we entangle ourselves in. But the question is, do we turn to the Lord and receive his extravagant love? Have you turned to the Lord and received his extravagant love for you? Have you strayed far down the wrong road thinking you are too unlovely? too ugly, too scarred, or too ragged to experience such a powerful and redeeming and all-enveloping love. It's not true. No one is too far gone to receive the love that God has for them in Christ. And he is there waiting patiently for you to turn to him even now, if only you will avail yourself of that opportunity. Now, a word of caution here. I don't want to let us believe that simply because we are sitting in this church building today that we are actually living in the reality of that extravagant love. You know, sometimes it is the one who has been too close for too long that doesn't realize that they have forsaken the one who loves them so. 
And since the Lord ordained that we should learn from Hosea's broken marriage relationship, uh, I thought that Matthew Frey's own story might help us. Uh, Matthew wrote down his story and the lessons that he learned the hard way in a book called This Is How Your Marriage Ends. He tells about how he always thought there were what he called major marriage crimes, a category of offenses that, if committed, would destroy a marriage. He thought that only things like sexual affairs, abuse, or gambling away the family's savings would break a marriage. So when he and his wife disagreed about something, when she was upset that he would never do the dishes, when he got offended by what he perceived as her overreaction to the issue, he wasn't really concerned. He described his feeling of offense as being charged with premeditated murder when his infraction was something closer to driving over the speed limit without, with a burned-out taillight that he didn't even know was burned out. And yet, he writes, the reason my marriage fell apart seems absurd when I describe it. My wife left me because sometimes I leave dishes by the sink. It makes her seem ridiculous It makes me seem like a victim of unfair expectations. However, it was only when his marriage crashed that he was finally able to see. And he writes, but it wasn't the dishes, not really. It was what they represented. He figured out the hard way that the dishes issue wasn't really about the dishes, but about the level of his concern and consideration for her. His refusal to even consider changing his ways communicated disrespect and a lack of loving concern for her. It was his attitude of aloofness and entitlement that drove her to the breaking point, and it ended with the breaking of their marriage. He was so bent on being right and having his own way that he became blind to the hurt that he had been causing throughout all the various aspects of their marriage relationship. Now, there are two ways we can go with this. On one level, you may now be reflecting on some of the seemingly minor misunderstandings and disagreements that you have in your own marriage or some other relationship. Or even uh, you might need to recognize that what you thought was the issue wasn't really the issue, that there was something much deeper and of much more significant concern behind that issue. Now, you may not completely understand it, or you may have to admit that you really do understand what it is, but you just haven't wanted to face it. But if this is the case, maybe you need to go home and have a conversation that is long overdue. You may need to humble yourself and admit that there is a deeper problem there. But I also want each of you to consider that your own relationship with the Lord can go so far astray because you have no regard or consideration for him. And our disregard for the Lord can be found in the little things far more often than it can be found in the big things. Sure, we'll show up to church, maybe a midweek Bible study or small group, and we haven't killed anybody in in cold blood, so that's a plus, right? However, 
are we developing the daily consideration to inquire of the Lord the decisions we make, of the attitudes we have towards his people, and whether or not we are actually honoring him with our lives at home, at work, at church, and in public? And then, will we be patient and humble enough to listen without feeling the need to get defensive or to self-justify or to ignore the input as being too invasive, too demanding, or just too out there for us to consider. For it is in the little ways that we show disrespect to the Lord that we end up going astray in big ways. And altogether, too often, we only realize this in retrospect when the damage is already done. So I reflect on my own life Uh, on the times when my wife tells me that the kids feel like I'm spending too much time on my phone. When she is concerned that seemingly insignificant things draw out unwarranted outbursts of anger from me. Or when the Lord pricks my soul and asks me to sit with him in prayer or about my failure to respond to his warnings about things that can become idols in my life. You know, it's not just these things that matter, but it's the people behind them. Will I show such disregard or inconsideration for the Lord and for my family? And what about you? What are those things that the Holy Spirit has put on your conscience where it is not really about the thing itself, but about your level of consideration and appreciation for the people and relationships that are suffering and slowly burning out because of your lack of response. So if your conscience is being prodded, act now while you can and revitalize those relationships with the Lord and the important people in your life while those relationships still have a chance to be revived. We don't want to end up like Mr. Frey, learning only afterward when everything has fallen to pieces. Now, as we continue through our passage, we find that there are conditions for us to return to the Lord. We come to verse 3, where it is written, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man so I will also be to you. So here in verse 3, we get the words of Hosea to his newly redeemed wife. And not just words, but restrictions, conditions. Some translations have that last phrase reading, even as I will not go into you. But it is important for us to know that there is not a negative participle present in the Hebrew. And this matters because we want to know that as Gomer returns to Hosea, Hosea is also returning to Gomer without putting up distance or boundaries to their relationship. Because as we return to God, he will return to us and give himself fully to us again. So, 
What about these conditions that Hosea lays out for Gomer? Well, I'm actually going to turn to Paul uh, because I feel like he gives us some good insight into why such conditions are laid out for Gomer. So if you want to uh, keep your finger in Hosea and turn over to the book of Ephesians, uh, we will be in Ephesians chapter 4 here. Um, And I feel like Paul, uh, you know, does a great job in this section uh, telling us what our new lives in Christ ought to look like with some notable contrast. So Ephesians 4, we're going to start in verse uh, 25. And Paul writes, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sin sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. There is a simple principle at work here that when you put the old life behind you, you must replace it with habits belonging to the new life. When you put that old life behind you, you must replace it with habits belonging to the new life. That's why Paul says, don't lie, speak truth. Don't let your anger lead you to sin. Resolve the issue without sinning. Don't steal. Do honest work with your hands to bless others. No more dirty, perverse talk, but speak things that love others and build them up. See, this is what Hosea sets out for for Gomer, conditions for living a new life. She has spent much time investing herself in her old ways, but Hosea says to her, no more. And in the same way, God says, no more. We are going a new direction together, you and I. Come, follow me, be with me, allow my guidance to transform your life. So let me ask you, and maybe you'll have something come to mind when I ask you this. When is the last time you tried to change a bad habit or start a good habit? How easy did you find it to do? Now, I find that changing habits are simple enough when it's fresh and we're enthusiastic about it. But as time wears on, it can be difficult to maintain that habit. Stuff gets in the way. The new habit just isn't as fun or exciting as we thought it was going to be. Or we run into stress in life and we want uh, a quick release or some pleasure. And so we stop doing that habit. Now, I'm learning this uh, right now in my life as I make my second attempt in the past year to learn the slap guitar technique on bass guitar. Yes, I have to say second because the first attempt only lasted about a week before I let things get in the way. And it is still a struggle to find time to put into it. But 
that's just the habit of practicing an instrument. What about when we are trying to change an entire lifestyle? You know, if you talk to somebody who's dealt with addiction in their life uh, and they are serious about turning their life around, you will find that they have put some important things in place. First, they will have set themselves up in community and they will have accountability and they will have boundaries. Most of them will have an attitude of humility and a teachable heart. You know, they are willing to learn a new way of life, even if they run into bumps along the way, because they have resolved to say goodbye to their old habits and lifestyle. Hosea wants to restore his relationship with Gomer the way God wants to restore his relationship with Israel and with all of us. And all he is doing is setting up a healthy pathway forward with healthy boundaries in place. He wants to see Gomer develop the things that matter most to their relationship. Purity, faithfulness, intimacy, and togetherness, along with a sense of their relationship moving in the right direction. And this is what God wants for you. You know, spiritual habits and disciplines aren't just about the practices themselves. They communicate to God that you are willing to live within his will for the sake of having a vibrant relationship with him. And for me personally, this is what I appreciate so much about being in discipleship relationships. And I'm not talking about leading uh, in these relationships. I'm talking about being a participant because it's so much easier for me to set up and continue in those fundamental habits of relating to Christ when I am in ongoing community with others and they are heading in the same direction that I am. You know, they help me keep my life and my focus and my activity within the guardrails and focused on the Lord. And perhaps maybe you need to seek out a relationship like that as well. So this setting up of new boundaries and direction for Gomer translates into setting up new boundaries and direction for um, Israel. We read in verse 4 that the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. So this list is a thing, is a list of all the things that have caused Israel to fall away from God. I won't go through them all, but I will highlight one in a way that summarizes why the Lord put these restrictions in place, and that of being without king or prince. See, if you go and read 1 Samuel chapters 8 and 9, you will get to read about how Israel decided that they needed a king. And in 1 Samuel 8 verse 7, God reveals the true heart of the problem. God says to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. The reason God takes away Israel's king and kingdom from them is so that they will learn that they need to accept him back as Lord of their lives, not otherworldly rulers and leaders. And it is the same for everything else that's listed in this verse. He removes those things from them so that they will draw close to him again. And likewise, we must put aside the things that get in the way of our worship 
with God and our communion with him. And we must recognize that this is a means to an end, that we may experience the blessings of the Lord. As we read in verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. So when we are willing to set aside the barriers in our relationship with God and come to him with open hands and a willing heart, he will open up the storehouse of his blessings and pour them out on us. And we will experience the blessings of the Lord. So God has a glorious future in store for his people. He has a glorious future in store for you and even a present day glory that you can experience now. Do you want to know what it means to truly live being known as a child of God? Do you want to know what it means to have an identity given to you by the one who created you and knows you better than you know yourself? Do you want freedom, purpose, hope, acceptance, righteousness, and to be done with the fear and the shame and the guilt that so plague us all when we choose to live in our old lives instead of the new life that God desires for us. Now, ultimately, the doorway to experiencing the blessings of the Lord is Jesus. You see, Jesus came to be the way. He came to be the truth, and he came to be the life that we all need. Jesus is the door through which we enter into the blessings and abundant life of God. He is the Savior and Redeemer for you and for me. He is the one who came to welcome us into the abundant goodness of the Father, saying, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they will follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. He is the living hope. He is the trailblazer of our salvation and the guarantee of a better covenant. He is living water, and he is the bread of life. Where else would we run to? So whatever you have tried to run to, whatever you have tried to hide behind, whatever other little god or idol you have tried to find life in, just put it down. Set it down. Turn from those things to the living God. Be restored to him through Christ, our Redeemer. Place your trust and faith in him today, again, and don't leave here without telling us if you have because we want to walk alongside you in your new life. Now the blessings of God and the experiences of his love may be interrupted by our actions but that love will never be quenched. We need to come to Christ. We need to rest in the extravagant eternal and deep and abiding love God has shown for us in Christ today. Would you join me in that? Do you want that? Does that sound like something you need today? Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. Just for a moment, Lord, we're open before you. Lord, I believe that in this place you have made it known to people uh, the things that are standing in the way of their communion with you, of knowing you and knowing your love deeply. 
whether they're actions or objects or attitudes, Lord. I pray that in this moment of silence that you would just reveal these things to them and God, that that, uh, each individual would give up those things and lay them down at the altar and allow them to be taken away. Father, as we turn from those things, God, we turn to you and we turn to experience the loving embrace of a good God who loves us so. We give thanks that you are here with us. We give thanks that you love us beyond any of the stupid things that we can wrap ourselves up in. That you will cross every boundary and barrier to bring us back to you, to be with us. That is our hope in Christ. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.